Welcome to Leaders in Tech and E-Commerce podcast. This episode first aired on our sister podcast, Leaders in Supply Chain, and it covers a lot of topics about technology. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain and Logistics podcast. I'm your host, Rado Palamario, Managing Director of Elcot Global. Our mission is to connect the supply chain ecosystem in Asia and globally by bringing forward the most interesting leaders in the industry. And it's my pleasure to have with us today Adi Vaidya, who's the Chief Operating Officer at Zilingo. Zilingo is the top fashion and lifestyle marketplace allowing smaller merchants from Southeast Asia without an online presence to list their items for sale direct to consumer. They have raised Series D funding of 226 million, nearing almost a $1 billion valuation. Adi founded the Indonesia business and grew it from zero to one of the largest fashion marketplaces in ASEAN today. And he also set up the B2B platform and designed the entire logistics flow from seven countries into ASEAN, primarily Indonesia, to support the procurement needs of sellers. He soon also took over the entire supply chain optimization and set up hubs in Bangladesh, Vietnam, Korea, China, Thailand, Myanmar, and and so on. He is uh, the Chief Operating Officer since 2017 at Zilingo, and he now drives the company's P&L of of almost $1 billion billion and operational efficiency across business units, including B2B and B2C. He also looks after more than 300 people in six geographies, and he's he's rapidly expanding his team, so do look him up after this podcast uh, in case you're interested to apply. Um, Adi, uh, pleasure to have you with us today, and thank you for your time. Thank you, Raru. Pleasure. Super. So maybe maybe start by telling us a little bit about your background, because I I know you you didn't you know do all the all your yeah. life uh, e-commerce, right? So you came from actually Citibank, and then you ended up at Zilingo. So tell us a little bit about yourself personally and how you ended up. Yeah, Zilingo. sure, sure. Would love to. Uh, so I'm actually from a small town uh, in northern part of India. Uh, grew up there uh, without much access to um, uh, information and uh, uh, without much exposure. To, to the online world uh, itself. Uh, when I first moved to Mumbai, that was for a university. Uh, that is when I, uh, let's put it this way, saw the world for the first time in a way. And I was already 18 at that point of time, 17 or 18 at that point of time. And uh, it was it was eye-opening in many ways. Uh, uh, people, businesses, um, uh, processes, etc. All of those things were sort of coming in front for the first time in life. And, and it was all very, very fascinating. Um, I did a degree in management studies um, from St. Xavier's College in Mumbai and um, that's where I actually met Ankiti uh, who was uh, a one year senior to me in college and uh, both of us uh, worked together on multiple college festivals so sort of developed a working bond uh, from there itself. Uh, she moved on uh, and started working in management consulting and VC later and I moved on and started working with banking and of course it was it was, it was was literally like one of those moments where uh, uh, you are you are a twenty something and and you get a prestigious job and you're like hey this is this is probably what uh, I'm destined for and that's how I landed up in Citibank and I started working um, with some uh, tech and pharma clients actually um, so I did two years in Citibank and I was based in the Mumbai headquarters and um, I think over time um, started uh, meeting a lot of uh, our clients so I used to deal with. Um, a lot of local Indian uh, corporates and I started working with a lot of uh, as I said starting with pharma and tech companies and then later also into some of the companies that were doing uh, financial services so non-banking financial institutions I think the core learning that came out of that entire experience was uh, and of course 
uh, at this stage i wasn't really sure what i really want to do in life but the core learning that sort of started coming up especially in the indian ecosystem of corporates was um, that things are really marred by inefficiencies now when we are working with nbfcs who are lending to one of the nbfcs i was working with was actually lending to truck drivers and that's where the first sort of interaction with smaller businesses happened and you could see that those people are not really at advantage um, and uh, if something could be done for them it would definitely change lives of many people involved um unfortunately when you are working with a bigger financial institution um you are actually working in the interest of the bigger corporates etc and maybe and nothing wrong in that but uh, and that's the client set those guys are working on but that is somewhere where i guess the first sort of hints came that hey i really want to help the other side of the spectrum where you could actually work with these smaller businesses and maybe um have impact on scale um and i think two two and a half years of city bank and one fine day ankit uh, called me and she said that hey i'm uh, looking at this idea of doing something for uh, businesses in the fashion and lifestyle supply chain wasn't very aware of how the how the entire supply chain works um so did a bit of a study met her a few times and uh, we started uh, coming down to bangkok a couple of times uh, as well so uh, bangkok india a couple of other countries were some of the first first sort of uh, uh, places where we were uh, doing the hypothesis or running the hypothesis on um and that's when sort of uh, we decided that hey this really is an untapped opportunity um i think where the idea also came from was we were coming from india where the flipkart uh, and the amazon revolution was really on the up uh, southeast asia on the other hand even though after so many trips that we made we realized that even though it has much better infrastructure both in terms of um, logistics as well as in terms of uh, smartphone penetration internet penetration etc was somewhere lagging behind as compared to let's say in india or china in terms of this entire uh, e-commerce revolution so i think that is where we sort of found a natural fit and we knew that if we don't do it now someone else is definitely going to do it there were of course uh, the rocket internet companies at that point in time and uh, all the credit to them for sort of clearing the jungle um, but they were either extremely horizontal marketplaces like the like the likes of lazada or they were um, uh, people who were working on slightly higher end brands no one was really aggregating the smaller businesses which is what we wanted to do uh, and that's how uh, we ended up in bangkok um, and started the business from there mm-hmm. super i mean so you know It's important to who you go to college with, right? Yeah. <laughs> choose your choose your good choose your helps. Good crowd around you. Yeah? Totally. Um, and tell us a little bit because you know there's there's listeners from all over the world that that will tune into the podcast. Tell us a little bit about Zilingo and explain it very simply to them in in you know in case they're not they're not familiar with it. Surely, uh, when we started the business and from the last uh, question itself, the idea was to aggregate small fashion merchants um, in ASEAN. Um, um bring them to light in terms of the digital economy and give them a platform to sell uh, to consumers across the region that is simply where we started from it was as simple as that um aggregating small businesses and giving them a place to sell um i think over the last 4 years the idea or the business has evolved quite drastically what started happening after about a year year and a half of us doing this what we realized is that the biggest challenge is not really selling here the biggest challenge for these guys is not really selling of course it's great to have a platform that empowers them or enables them to sell to 
businesses across the region or, or, or maybe consumers across the region. But the challenges are uh, far deeper entrenched than just a distribution challenge. The bigger challenge, for example, for these smaller businesses was sourcing. Like, hey, where do I really source from? Or another bigger challenge was financial services. The banks or institutions in this part of the world were not willing to touch these businesses, these small businesses. Uh, or another bigger challenge was that, hey, I have this agent who I can procure from, but what do I really procure? I don't know what to procure. So when we started sort of looking into these challenges and sort of went a bit more upstream, um, we realized that um, the B2B side of things where the businesses are dealing with other businesses uh, is not really solved for to a great extent. And of course, B2C is a lot more sexy and people want to solve for it. Um, B2B is getting your hands a lot more dirtier. But when we did that, the output per unit effort was a lot higher. And that's when we realized that, hey, maybe this is also something that we should start exploring. Um, and today, I think four years later, um, B2B is actually a larger part of the business at this point in time, uh, where we do multiple services on helping these uh, businesses and stakeholders, literally from sourcing to financial services to trend analytics, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's where the business has evolved to today from just being a small e-commerce marketplace. Mm. So you would say that right now you, you are more into the B2B space than you're into the B2C because you have both elements. We right? do have both. Uh, definitely. I wouldn't say that we move from B2C to B2B in any way. What happened actually was B2C, of course, kept growing at its steady pace. And in Indonesia, for example, we are still the largest uh, fashion marketplace. But the growth in B2B was so high or so fast that as a proportion now, the B2C business seems a bit smaller. So it's just that the growth on the one side of business was a lot higher. Yes, got it. Um, and 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 somebody somebody was asking the question in terms of. Uh, I think you mentioned at some point that you envision uh, you at Zlingo you envision Zlingo as a revolutionary new, new retail platform that acts as a single one-stop mm. solution for merchants and manufacturers. Mm. Um, how would you describe it? So, so let's let's just go into the practicality of it. Yeah. You know, how do you envisage, envisage that and how would that help people? Yeah, sure. So um, taking a step back, right? Like how really does the fashion supply chain work at this point in time? And when, what, do, what do we mean really when we say that it's broken, right? Uh, so if you're a business who's trying to procure, let's say, in the US and you want to procure from a manufacturer in Asia, let's say in Indonesia, um, it is extremely hard um, to get that connection right and get this entire flow done in a in an efficient manner. Now, what does that mean? Now, how would you end up doing it? Now, let's say I'm, I'm a business somewhere in the US. I will reach out to an agent in my state first who reaches out to an agent, let's say in New York, who reaches out to a customs agent in, let's say, somewhere in China, who's then working with some other agents, etc., etc., etc. So the whole process is by middlemen. There are middlemen after middlemen after middlemen, each of those sucking in 5 to 10% of the margins, making it extremely expensive for the final brand to eventually procure those items uh, or making it extremely hard uh, at the first place to even understand what to procure. Uh, so one of the things that we call, talk about a lot internally is called yarn to closet. So mm. what we are saying or what we are envisioning or what we are telling our teams internally is that our objective is to make the yarn to closet process uh, as simple as possible. We want to remove these middlemen and ensure only the right people or the people who add value stay in this supply chain. Uh, so we work today, for example, with people from 
who are producing yarn to fabrics to ready-made garments to brands and eventually consumers and those are really the people who are adding value other than that it's just it's just some sort of information arbitrage that is happening and you're making money on that so the idea is to remove that information arbitrage um, with the help of technology enable these businesses whether they're in the US or LATAM or in Asia itself to see or to directly con- connect with these bigger manufacturers or suppliers of businesses uh, and the tool allows uh, them to do that because it is highly localized both in terms of currency and language and then to let them procure and choose what they want to procure and choose and of course we enable them uh, or we help them to do it better through multiple things including a trend analysis tool or a financial services tool as i told you mm. and and let's let's go a little bit in terms of the uh, because there's as you said there's the uh, underneath this, this so this the vision is clear yeah. but underneath it is you know you have a lot of you know on the operation side yes. and you you're in charge of supply chain optimization you set up hubs in in all those yes. countries tell us a little bit what does that mean i mean how how do you make it happen how do you measure it how do you tangibly look at it sure so um and i'm glad you mentioned the point about supply hubs uh, as well right so the thing is all of this and one of the realizations that we've had over the last 4 years is that all of this can't work simply by having uh, an app or a tool and then just praying and hoping that this will work out uh, you need to have people on the ground um and you need to have these hubs created where technology is actually empowering these hubs but technology in my view personally um is an empowerer it is it is not going to replace uh, the human touch it is not going to replace these physical hubs that we're trying to create so one of the hubs that we have created is in uh, tirupur in southern part of india another hub that we've created is in bandung in outskirts of uh, jakarta in indonesia uh, what happens there is that we have uh, uh, an office or a team of people on the ground who are actually going and meeting these manufacturers uh, pretty much uh, on on a weekly or a monthly basis what they do there is that they go and understand what is the biggest problem that these guys are facing now to give you an example and to make it a little more tangible right so one of the factories that we were working with in indonesia uh, told us that hey our biggest challenge is that i have 10 lines if you if if you understand uh, the concept of lines in manufacturing of clothing line, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so he they said he i have 10 lines here and um somehow i'm not able to figure but my production capability is going down and i'm just not able to figure what's happening uh, now i have these 10 lines and i'm not really sure what is going wrong where so we worked and we helped uh, establish an erp mechanism quality control mechanism for them there using the technology that we have plus the partners that we work with uh and they were then able to figure which of these lines were actually doing better and which of the lines were not doing better and why those lines were not doing better so this technology or this tech basically enables them to see that on a let's say a heat map basis this particular line has five defaults or this particular line has only one default and then you can actually figure that out take it out and solve that problem and then fix it so those are some of the things that we've started doing and again on a very very tangible level this was a very very microscopic example where literally to the level of line efficiency is something that we're trying to solve for and then of course there are matrix attached to these things on which factory is 
is doing better in terms of, uh, uh, let's say, um, lesser defects, um, better sort of delivery timelines, um, etc. So, so that is that is sort of on a very ground level how this is working. Mm. Oh, but that's fascinating, and I mean, uh, I didn't realize that you go into that much that much yeah. detail, and uh, and then I mean, that, that I'll, I'll sidetrack a little bit with the question now, but. And so how do you charge on, I mean, in terms of the business model, yes. right? So, okay, because if you, you know, somebody posts an item for sale on your website yes. and then you sell that, yes. you get a cut. It's quite yes. straightforward, right? Yes. But in this case, I mean, yes. how do you charge? Is it like a subscription? I mean, how do you... For sure. So, I think the model is uh, still the same. The model is very clear to us in our head where uh, we don't want to charge the business partners that we work with um, unless they sell. The idea is to make sure that as you sell or when you sell, we charge you for it. Now, these tools on the whole, um, uh, and we don't enforce businesses to necessarily pay a lot of money for these tools. Of course, there might be a minimal subscription fee because if something is for free, people don't value it. Um, But other than that, the whole idea or the concept for the business as a philosophy has been the fact that tech tools, all of those things are going to be more like growth hacks. These are the things that are actually going to get you people get you these people in to start working with you because you know what will happen and this is something that we've tested before if you go out and you tell someone that hey i'm gonna establish these tools or i'm gonna put these tools in your factory it's extremely hard to get a buy-in if you start charging for it from day one till the time the person doesn't see some sort of output coming out of that they won't we've actually converted factories where we started working with these tools for free let's say and six months down the line they were like hey this is extremely useful and we were like hey we, we want to charge something for this and they're totally comfortable doing that so we need to first show them an impact again we don't want to be here as someone who comes and says that hey no 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 buy this buy this buy this mm-hmm. and i want to charge money for this you want to show impact first um the two philosophies that we work on for our businesses and for us ourselves is improvement in top line and improvement in bottom line improvement in top line is a lot easier method to get an in improvement in bottom line is a more longer term play and we feel like both are extremely critical but you need to go from the top line approach first install the things that will help improve bottom line and then over time start monetizing on that mm-hmm. and, and and in terms of in terms of um, okay so if we are to look at some of the current challenges that you face sure. right? so all this this is is really interesting and and i'm sure that you you know that's why they have you right you know operations people yeah. are there to fix problems yeah. so what what's some of the biggest problems that you face in your operations at the moment i think um in terms of the ecosystem on the whole, um, it's and from the first question I was mentioning that uh, we're very grateful to, to the likes of uh, Rocket Internet who cleared the jungle. Um, as we started going upstream, the jungle is still there. Like it's it's not yet been cleared. It's extremely hard. So a lot of people ask us that hey, who's your competition or who are you like? It's very it's very hard to explain. So when there is no comparison, it becomes hard for not just uh, the people you work with for the investors for the media to really understand what you're trying to do for example uh, if uber is burning or if an uber was burning millions of dollars uh, and lyft comes in and says that hey you know what i'm also gonna burn maybe 10 million dollars lesser but you know but there is a comparison here so when we come in and we try to tell a business that hey you know what why don't you work with us and do that and they're like hey but who are you like what what are you guys so i think education is a big big challenge um the upstream side of things or the b2b side of things is still under 
undereducated, I, I would say, in, in, in this entire scheme of things. And the second bit is that the entire ecosystem, as I spoke, um, is still very geared for a B2C side of things, especially here. Uh, China is not, um, which is great because Alibaba cleared that jungle there. Um, but Southeast Asia, ASEAN, which we feel has a tremendous potential with um, the entire US-China uh, uh, trade battles, etc. happening, uh, is still undereducated. So I think uh, in terms of both education and the ecosystem development, where, uh, as an example, if I were to be a little more specific, um, you will find 20 logistics partners to work with you on B2C. On B2B, probably the number is two, uh, because people have not even thought about those challenges or those issues that, hey, if you were to ship something from uh, as simple as uh, in Indonesia to uh, Philippines, what would really happen? What are the custom duties that are going to be actually involved in? And are you going to do sea freight? Are you going to do air freight? How are you going to work around those things? So in B2C, solutions are very bespoke. In B2B, it's still a lot harder. Hmm. I mean, and, and also, I mean, let's, 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 let's face it. I mean, with hard problems yes. come also potentially very good um, uh, business uh, opportunities so totally easy problems <laughs> totally and i guess that has been the reason as i mentioned uh, that the output per unit effort that we're seeing on b2b is just extremely high it's it's like if someone is actually coming in and trying to explain that hey this is what we're trying to create um people really do get it especially the businesses um, who work with clients globally they do definitely get it mm. Another question that comes to my head, top of my head, you know, in the flow of the moment, yes. like, so how do you, let's say I'm a client, right? Yeah. Back to your, no, you, you don't really, I mean, there's not, not so much, I mean, basically you're kind of quite unique in what, in what you do. Yeah. So when they ask you, so you're like who, you're like what, yeah. what are you, you know, yeah. what, what's the simplest way that you yeah. explain? I think, I think, um, good question. Uh, and we've been thinking about it for quite some time as well. Um, we used to go f- with multiple approaches. So to someone, you will say that, hey, I can help you procure better. Or to someone else, you will say that, hey, you know what? I am also the biggest B2C marketplace in Indonesia, maybe doing well in Thailand, in Philippines. I can help you sell better. Or you can go with the approach that, hey, you know what? It's very hard for you to get access to banks, etc. But we partner with uh, UOB, with multiple other financial institutions institutions, DBS, we can help you get financial services better. Um, but it's 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 just a complicated pitch every time because you're trying to uh, tailor it for the client. So that approach, of course, still works. But one of the good things that happened um, uh, that our tech guys uh, who, who work out of Bangalore in India did was that we created a, a single uh, UI or single UX experience for our businesses and it's a recent development not a very complicated piece of tech but one of the landmark things that we did actually where now there is a single app which we go and show the business and we say you know what this is us so it says source it says it says sell it says financial services it says ERP HRMS whatever you want in one piece so we say that hey we are a single stop solution for you as a business to do whatever and uh, we we were, th- we were talking about this internally. There are a couple of people in the team who had their own businesses and they were like, hey, if I had something like this, it would have made life so much easier because I can just go and say, I want to procure this. I want access to financing. I want to also sell here. It's all there in one place. So a single stop solution now. Uh, of course, when we go and meet multi-million dollar clients, uh, it's a lot different there. We pitch, we, we try and pitch in a more tailor-made fashion. Uh, but for smaller businesses, it's the single stop solution. No, super. And, 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 you know, the fact that you've got people within and, and, you know, you're, there's a couple of obviously entrepreneurs, there's a lot of entrepreneurs within the company as far as I know. And if they said that, uh, 
well, scratching your let's put it this way: scratching your own itch is a very good strategy totally. for uh, for totally. making it. Uh, and in, I think what helps a lot is I totally aligned. What helps a lot is that we are talking to our manufacturers like all the time, and we are talking to our sellers all the time. And of course, B two B is comparatively newer but b2c sellers are b2b buyers so you keep meeting them asking them that hey what is it that is going to really help you yes yes um one one listener had the had the question in terms of going a little bit into your main consumer portfolio and then target markets for expansion yeah if you can give us some idea on that i think um uh, it would have been a lot simpler answer about a year ago it's a lot more complicated today uh what we've started um realizing as we started going upstream was that hey it's not just the um uh, ready-made garment manufacturer who needs help it's not just the brand who needs help you know what the fabric guy also really needs help or you know what the young guy also really needs help so the target consumer is pretty much every stakeholder in the fashion and lifestyle supply chain starting from yarn to fabric to rmg to brand and consumer Uh, and we are tailor making solutions for all of them of course for a consumer solution is far different from the all all the other businesses in the supply chain but you tailor make so for fabric for example um it's a lot easier for you to uh, sell online as compared to a ready-made good because fabric specifications are a lot more standard the problem though what the fabric guys face is that there are very few people making fabric as compared to let's say a ready-made garment manufacturer um so uh, it's 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 I wouldn't say the problem they face, but the problems that arise the, from the in the fabric to ready-made garment section is very different. So there are actually a cartel of middlemen between the fabric guy and the manufacturer, uh, which is skewing the prices so bad. Uh, this, this is something that we realized in Indonesia, um, that if you are able to remove that cartel from there, the prices of fabric, which is actually 60% of the ready-made garment's price, uh, falls. Uh, and the efficiency that you can bring in by just doing that is immense mm. tell us a little bit maybe you have an example of, of you know one specific I mean, let, I'm, I'm sure there's many yeah. but there's one specific case that may be the more impressive one right in terms of some actions that you took or some changes or tweaks in the system yeah. that, that really created yeah. a, a, a no, an definitely. impact yeah I can actually talk about a couple of them. Sure. Um, uh, maybe one on the B2B side, one on the B2C side. So on the B2B side, this particular example, right? So we were uh, working with manufacturers in uh, Bogor and Bandung. Um, and um, there are only, currently there are only two major hubs for fabric um, in Asia, pretty much globally as well. So India is really, really good for cotton and China is really, really good for poly. And then you have Taiwan, Korea, etc. doing more sp- specific sort of fabrics more high-end fabrics but india and china broadly are doing a lot more fabric um into our part uh, of manufacturing now um indonesia fabric is a sunset industry so very very few people are really manufacturing fabric in indonesia uh, so these manufacturers, when you're talking to them, they said that, hey, you know what? The biggest pain point is fabric procurement because I have to either fly down to China every three months, every six months and find out what's happening there. I don't understand the language. I don't know what currency they are using. Um, or I have to talk to these agents who are here in my city or in my town and they will do it for me. Now, when we dug deeper, we realized that these agents actually uh, are uh, nothing but an individual businessman who's actually going to China. What he does is he goes, he uh, gets the swatches of fabric into Indonesia, marks up it by like 100% and then shows it to these guys. Again, they don't have any options, so they're just buying it. 
so the project that we started there was that he let's eliminate these middlemen. What we do is we have a small team in uh, in China and Hong Kong as well, but we'll aggregate these fabric manufacturers and get them on board onto our platform and directly present these uh, as a solution to our clients. And that changed life for many of these people. Of course, it's not as straightforward as it sounds. They, these are very highly entrenched into the system, these agents. And again, there are cartelizations. I have literally been in rooms with exporter associations where they've threatened me uh, that, hey, do not try to surpass I us. I wouldn't be uh, surprised. Yeah. So it, it's not Watch that, your back. <laughs> totally. It's not that straightforward, but there mm-hmm. have been uh, uh, instances where we've actually been able to connect these manufacturers not directly with fabric manufacturers uh, and prices and cost of goods has gone down by 60%, up to 60%. So that has been one of the uh, highlights and something that we're very, very proud of. Um, And the second bit on the B2C side of things was when we entered uh, Indonesia about three years ago now, two and a half, three years ago, uh, years ago now, um, it was extremely hard. It was extremely challenging to get items delivered to all parts of Indonesia. Of course, everyone was doing Jakarta, Jabateda, Bek, the Jakarta megacity region. Uh, Some people were doing Bali, some people are also doing Sumatra, but either the timelines were like 15 days or no one was offering cash and delivery, which is like 90% of the payment method used in these countries. And that is when with the uh, sort of an amal- amalgamation of our ops and tech systems, uh, we built this app optimization slash route optimization tool, partnered with about five different uh, uh, providers of uh, last mile logistics um, and uh, sort of built this uh, uh, mechanism where the orders were now to be shipped via which particular route through which particular provider depending on um, capability, capacity and uh, reach. Um, and uh, the SLAs dropped by nearly 50% uh, and we were doing uh, cr- across Indonesia deliveries with COD enabled within six months of launch. Uh, that was another great thing that happened, I think, and um, sort of pushed us to becoming uh, a very loved and accepted brand in the country. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it, uh, for sure, when you're saving people money, um, yeah. and it typically, it typically, yeah. yeah, and time, it yeah. typically works, but. Uh, like in 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 many industries where there's uh, there's middlemen, uh, of course the middlemen will not uh, be very happy appreciated. <laughs> so you know maybe you can convert them. I don't know. Yeah. It's just that again, yeah. old habit uh, habits die die hard, right? Yeah. So, um, moving a little bit to to a different uh, skew of a question because we have a we have a listener that was asking about sustainable development about, mm. and I think this is a big topic, sustainability mm. in general. And you know you you hear a lot about global mm. warming and a lot all of these things. Um, so so have you have you is this also on your agenda do you do things specifically you know for 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 the sustainability uh, agenda or how does it work for, for sure i think um and going a little back actually in time when 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 i was studying in university uh, there was always two type of uh, people in the class right there was one group of people who wanted to go into corporates and um, uh, earn money they were tagged as people who want to earn money and then there was another uh, section of people who wanted to go and help people so help people and earn money i think what zilingo has enabled us all to do is um, uh, not just be in that sort of uh, 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 cop- i wouldn't call it corporate but not not just be in an environment where you are trying to build a business but also help people uh, and also help the planet and how does this happen right it's it's very entrenched 
uh, that as and when you start optimizing a particular supply chain, you eventually start helping things on a more macro scale. Now, unlike an electronic supply chain where a Foxconn exists and is pretty much building iPhones for everyone in the world, the fashion supply chain is so, so, so fragmented with hundreds and thousands of manufacturers across the world that if you were to in any way sort of aggregate these businesses and bring some sort of efficiency, you will save uh, not just time or money, but also the planet in some ways. Now, to be a little more tangible, right? So uh, building a t-shirt, for example, or manufacturing a t-shirt uh, takes about, uh, I don't know the exact, I'm forgetting the exact number, but about uh, 20,000 liters of water, I'm assuming, from growing cotton to then manufacturing it to then shipping it, etc. So the whole process is about 20,000 liters of water. Now, the thing is with Zilingo's uh, trend analytics tool, um, if you are able to actually uh, predict better what sort of t-shirt you should be building the inventory won't go waste like someone is definitely going to go and buy it i'm not saying with 100 surety that the item would get sold but the probability of getting sold increases and if you're actually able to do that you are saving water you're saving the planet we also work uh, across uh, there are efforts across the company where we are trying to uh, reduce waste so again one of the things that we're doing with our fabric manufacturers is that one of the bigger challenges for these guys is now let's assume i get an order from zara and i have to procure uh, 10 tons of fabric they would generally order 12 tons uh, accounting for wastage and generally there would be a, a wastage of about a, a ton and another ton would be left now what do you do with that right so we've actually designed a program where we are procuring this excess fabric, putting it on the platform and then selling it. So that has, again, not just helped uh, these guys get better uh, money, but also reduce wastage on the whole. And of course, all of this ties back to saving water, CO2 emissions, etc., etc. So very, very committed. I don't think these are different things. And I'm not a big fan of people doing business and then allocating half a percent of their uh, top line on CSR. I think both need to be interlinked. And I think we are going in that right direction. Mm. Um, uh, we we had a we had a, um, another question in terms of uh, in terms of focus. So for now, you seem to be quite focused on on ASEAN on Southeast Asia. Are there plans? Uh, and I think you touched briefly on it. But are, are there plans also on Middle East? There was one listener that was specifically asking about Middle East because he's from there. Yeah, no, definitely. So in fact, um, when we started, it was a, a, a big um, Asia to Asia story, ASEAN to ASEAN story. But I think as we've um, matured and grown over time, we've also realized the fact that um, it's super hard to beat Asian supply, both in terms of uh, quality and pricing. Um, but um, you need to have a global vision in terms of the demand. So we are very, very open to exploring demand in other parts of the world as well. In fact, as I mentioned, and I gave the example of a US business, that is actually a real example. So we actually have set up an office now in the US and in Sydney and Australia as well, where um, uh, I think, I don't know why this realization didn't happen earlier, but uh, we are actually able to sell faster, better uh, with higher margins in developed world, because I think the proximity is, lesser to the supply and hence it's easier so totally definitely middle east is one of the countries or one of the regions on the radar as well super um we talked also a little bit about um about um disruption about the the new things that you're doing about hmm. the new things that you're planning to do hmm. um there's there's also there's there's existing obviously there's some existing providers in the space of supply chain yeah. and, and, and e-commerce and, and all of that but 
Where or which one, which one of the initiatives that you're doing do you think will make the most uh, impact in terms of disrupting, if you may, right? And you've talked about the one-stop solution. I mean, I think in, in yep. my head that probably is it, but I'm, I'm just going to ask the question because it was specifically yeah. framed like that. Yeah, right? I think um, we need to go deeper into factories, into manufacturing, and I think uh, that is what is going to cause the next wave of disruption in the supply, in the supply chain of fashion. I give one example of uh, ERPs um, and better line management, etc. And again, since the whole system is so unregulated, even a small piece of thing happening there helps. So, for example, till today, um, uh, efficiencies and uh, the lines, etc., are being managed on whiteboards, even for the factories that are producing for the biggest international brands. Um, happy to share some content around how we are changing those things as well. But um, I think uh, one of the things that our factory owners keep talking to us about is pilferage. And they say that there is a lot of stuff that is actually getting stolen from the factories. So, and this is something that we are having an active discussion with some of our investors who are very keen on looking on things like this in terms of technology, creating disruption, um, uh, and, and with the three to five years view, right? So we are, we are actually thinking of installing not just a software, but hardware and IOTs in these factories where you have... Uh, uh, um, no one needs to manually then upload that hey these are the products in my warehouse now if there is an IOT there and the the, the inventory is auto updated onto, onto the systems um, there the chances of pilferage and theft reduces drastically and again this is not a small problem it's a 5 to 10 percent of the items getting lost uh, another problem or a big challenge that one of our Bangladeshi uh, partners told us was that hey I have about 40,000 people working in my factory I think 5,000 of them don't exist so they are ghost uh, workers who are um, just somehow getting the attendance done and they never come to work so now again you can't think of the solution as uh, putting a a, a fingerprint reader because 40,000 people doing fingerprint reader full day is going to go in that so we are actually thinking of uh, installing some sort of RFID chips in these factories so that as you walk in uh, and through your ID card etc it gets read and you are in and uh, and your attendance is done so I think there there will be some sort of disruption in terms of the entire process in which these factories are run. Uh, some sort of blockchain contracts are something that are on the radar as well because, again, um, trust is broken. Supply chain is so fragmented. So if you have a, a close-knit blockchain sort of solution around contracts, that can also definitely help. So we're looking at into 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 blockchain, into IoT, into some sort of hardware as well as as years uh, go on. Uh, and that is, I feel, going to be the next change of uh, the supply chain. Uh, I guess in the fashion space. Mm. Well, I mean, I can if I can chip in with my own observation. Um, upon going to to a lot of conferences, and I've, I've just returned from Europe, and and I'm, I've attended uh, in Industry 4.0. This this was not for fashion specifically, but was for manufacturing in general. Um, and top, you know, Fortune 500 companies are all about all this, you know, uh, Industry 4.0, IoT, uh, blockchain, machine learning, artificial intelligence, but. Again, I think, you know, where you guys operate and where most of the other 99% of the companies that exist are not Fortune 500, yeah. you know, they're not at the at that level of, of development, technology, yes. and so on, right? And then you need to kind of, you know, they like you rightfully said, they run maybe manufacturing lines on a, on a, on a board or they run exactly. their company on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet. And yes. it's just a reality of today's exactly. world, right? So exactly. then how do we um, uh, help 
uh, all these companies also up their game, right? So yes. it's interesting what you mentioned because it almost sounds in my mind that as in you will have a plethora of uh, that you're aiming you're you're trying to get to a plethora of different tools or it's almost like you're building a toolbox and depending on where yeah. the company is yeah. or the manufacturing or the, the yeah. producer is okay let's let's see what you yeah. need to make the biggest impact right totally. on your business and I think data is gold right end of the day uh, tying back to one of the questions you asked earlier that are we really monetizing on these tools today maybe 100% not maybe some percentage but the idea is that if you don't get a large chunk of these businesses on the platform upfront and really realize what the problem is and then double down on that, you're going to be living in a dream world where you'll be solving one small problem which probably doesn't even matter to the larger masses. Mm. And let's talk a little bit about, you know, about people because ultimately yes. this is what makes yes. all this, this beautiful technologies work and, uh, and, and, and come together. So, you know, you have about 300 people right now in your team. So what makes it you know what's the most difficult I'd say because it's also when you're building such solutions that can be quite broad and you're kind of building a product that doesn't exist or hasn't existed it's much more difficult to find yeah. the right type of mindset yeah. and it's easier for Citibank let's say yeah. to find another banker than it is for you guys to find 100%. somebody that hasn't done what you've done because you don't you know so how do you how do you to tackle that I think um, very important question extremely extremely hard um, uh, to hire the right people I think that is probably one of the biggest challenges um when you're building something like this which has not existed before or something that is revolutionary in sorts uh, it is not really um, experience specific experience that matters of course it is important or it would be it's a good have that someone has come from let's say a supply chain background or someone's done some sort of marketing services in in another company before that that's all helpful but I think <clears throat> what is the, the what is the most important part is the right attitude and sort of alignment to the vision now there have been a lot of people who've come and spoken to us who are great CVs and uh, have great experience but when you talk to them about the vision that hey the idea is to transform the fashion supply chain which is about 3% of the global GDP that's about uh, 3-4 trillion dollars uh, people are just not able to fathom it and the idea is, and a lot of people tell us that, hey, in four years, you guys have raised a lot of money. It's a good valuation. We feel like we're not even a percent done because um, all of this has happened at pace because no one has really touched that space. Like it's virgin. Once you start touching that space, the opportunity is just immense. Uh, we are looking for people who have that audacity, have that courage, uh, have that alignment to the vision that, hey, we are here to change the world in some way or the other, uh, but change it for good. Um, and I think that is the most critical factor here. We've had people um, hired straight out of university. We also have people with 20 plus years of experience. But you know what? When you talk to them, you realize that they talk the same language mm. and they understand that vision. Um, but it's been it's it's been extremely challenging. It's been extremely challenging. We have about people from about 15 different nationalities. So we scout for people from across the world who understand the vision and who want who want to really make a change. Mm. How, how about the future? How about you know uh, you know uh, back to the people that end and you know it's it's a common question. Whether you are graduating or to be yeah. truthful, also if you're 50, I mean if uh, just picking an age, right? I mean let's say. It's more senior in your career because it's getting to a point where things are shifting so quickly that you know that you know maybe you are very ex experienced in something that might not be relevant anymore um, what do you see in the next five ten years right in terms of skill sets what should 
people, I mean, what should people focus on? Or what should you be learning or what type of, it can be soft skills, it can be hard, hmm. you know, but maybe both, yeah. I think, um, especially for a company like ourselves, which is growing uh, so fast uh, in terms of uh, soft soft skills, let's say first, and I talk a lot to our um, younger uh, team about this, um, is um, uh, leadership and management. Because what has happened in the past as well is for us definitely, and I'm assuming for companies uh, who have been revolutionary in the past, like the Googles and Apples of the world who grew fast and um, where leadership positions come faster is I believe that it won't be a conventional company trajectory where you will probably become a manager after five years and you probably have a team of 10 after 10 years. It will all come faster. So I think um, uh, uh, the leadership ability, um, the team management, etc. would become extremely critical. What that also means is and that is, I think, the slight uh, uh, of uh, 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 an issue, if I may put it that way, is that people need to be mature faster. Um, but then uh, you have the Instagrams and Facebooks of the world making it an instant gratification world and uh, maturity levels do go down uh, because of these things at times and we see it. Uh, I think people need to be mature faster. People need to absorb better. People need to be leading better. And I think that all needs to happen faster. So I think in terms of the soft skills, those are some of the things that we personally look at. We look at people who are mature enough in what they're doing, irrespective of the age, etc. Um, in terms of hard skills, I feel, again, it would be important. And I try and teach myself this to um, not be an expert, but at least know about things. Like when we started the business, I didn't know much about fashion. I didn't know much about supply chain. Uh, but we've been on the ground for four years now, really learning what are the problems or how really does an IoT work or what really uh, is a custom supply chain looking like. Uh, one thing I regret is I don't code, but I would love to. I think it's extremely important that you know what people, other people in the company you're collaborating with are doing, not probably to the extent that a CTO will know, but at least the basics. So I think it will be important that you have a plethora of uh, skills in terms of at least understanding what people are doing and be a mature leader. Mm. Let's 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 take it personal and let's sure. take it to you. Let's come to yourself because you have you have um, you know in four years you have grown tremendously with the company yep. and and you probably are a very good example of, of what it comes what it you know what you just said you know learning fast and maturing fast. Yes. What has been what has proven to be some of the most successful things that that have taken you there and also some of the challenges that you've gone through because I'm sure there's sure. been both right. I think persistence is something uh, I think and it came to me immediately as you asked. I think it's not been an easy ride. Um, personally, also, I've failed multiple times. I have been to meetings where people have thrown me out that, hey, you are you are a small company. Who are you? I don't care. And what are you talking about? And get out. And um, and uh, and there have been instances also where we've spoken to some of the biggest industry leaders and they've been extremely humble. So I think uh, persistence is first. Um, you can't uh, sit and have a broken heart and be sad about things. I think you need to keep moving on. Um, because to be frank, the best part about our world today, about the 2024 first century today is that there are many opportunities so there is no time to be disheartened and you need to keep moving on because opportunity is not going to dry down um, and I think the second thing has been humility um, and Ankiti I uh, we all 
talk a lot about this internally that we need to be a humble team because we've seen the biggest of the people, biggest of the investors, biggest of the uh, business leaders being extremely humble. And we've also seen a lot of aggressive people go down the bad way. So I think that is something that is ingrained in the philosophy of the company as well. And that I take very seriously personally that whoever you might become, uh, you need to stay humble because you are here to serve a mission. Um, and the company and the mission matters more than who you are personally. And I think it's very important to know that. Yes, yes. How about as a leader, right? And maybe uh, maybe as a, as a principle or maybe you may you, you may have a principle or you may have I don't know an advice or what would be something that you would apart from what you just shared that you would uh, that you would do as a leader consistently I think uh, I would fail faster uh, very cliche but uh, again um, uh, giving a, a, a bit better example or, or more ten- tangible example of what that means really is that uh, we have a lot of people coming into the organization who are uh, top performers and they always want to deliver something to you uh, which is 110 10% perfect and it doesn't work because things are moving really really fast and time is of essence so you can't just be looking at quality of work it has to be a quality of work plus time as another axis into this entire situation and you need to realize that because if you can deliver to me something 100% create after 10 days versus 80% in two days, I would prefer the first option. I think that is the biggest advice that I would love to give people that please don't forget about the time aspect of things because things are moving really fast. So uh, perfection plus time uh, need to work hand in hand. Yes, yes. Super. Well, Adi, thank you very much for the sharing. Really, really insightful uh, conversation and discussion and very, very um, good examples and, and practical case studies. So I'm sure that the audience took a lot. So appreciate you having us, uh, you know, uh, join, uh, joining us today. And good luck in, uh, you know, in building the company even further. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks, Radu. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For all the show notes and information discussed in the episode, please follow elkatglobal.com slash podcast. Also, if you found this interesting, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from.